When it comes to wild animals, chances are a lot of people don't associate them with cities like New York. That is, unless you count pigeons, rats, and squirrels. But look closer and you'll discover a wide variety of untamed creatures in the Big Apple, from coyotes to opossums to skunks. I'm George Bodarki, and this is Cityscape. Coming up on this week's show, we'll talk with a woman who helps to rehabilitate injured, sick, and orphaned wild animals in New York City. I wouldn't even necessarily say we're like nurses. We're like home health aides or something (laughs) like that. But first, New York City is home to tens of thousands of feral and stray cats. The New York City Feral Cat Initiative works to reduce the population with an approach known as TNR, Trap, Neuter, Return. With us now to talk about their efforts is Kathleen O'Malley. She's the initiative's director of TNR Education. Kathleen, welcome to Cityscape. Thank you. Glad to be here. So first of all, how many feral cats roam the streets of New York City? Is there an estimate? There is only a rough estimate. Tens of thousands is the most accurate that anyone is daring to get. Um, Because, first of all, the population fluctuates as kittens are born in the spring and summer, and not all of the kittens survive, unfortunately. And and just by the very nature of feral cats, they're afraid of humans and they hide from us. So how can we count heads if they're hiding from us? Very true. But where do they primarily live, that being said? Uh, feral cats and stray cats tend to cohabitate, and we call them collectively community cats. And they are everywhere in the city. They are in all five boroughs. Um, I would say that uh, commonly they're found in backyards, um, classic alleys. There are many alley cats in Chinatown, for example. Um, they hang around fish stores, meat stores, supermarkets, um, and they they feed off of vermin, um, primarily mice and baby rats, uh, and and you know trash left by humans. And that's the history of cats and humans that they were they started coming around us about ten thousand years ago to kill the mice that our grain stores attracted. And we kind of struck up a friendship, a little bit of a deal over the centuries. So it sounds like they'll set up shop anywhere where there's food and shelter, essentially. Yes, absolutely. They set up shop and then often kind-hearted people notice them and they start supplementing their food source with regular cat food. Is it legal to feed a feral cat in New York City? Yes, it is. However, as with everything else, you have to play by the other rules of sanitation and, and and health. So if you're feeding in such a way that is creating a sanitation or health hazard, then you could get fined. But if you're just feeding cats and giving them as much as they will eat and not making a big mess, then you're good. I've heard some horror stories here in New York City of neighbors who will actually poison the food that some people leave out for feral cats. That does happen. It's is actually pretty rare, according to a law enforcement official who I spoke to, one of the um, folks who work in the anti-cruelty squad of NYPD. So it is pretty rare, um, but it does happen, unfortunately, and it is illegal. It It is a felony in the state of New York to kill or try to kill a cat. Cats, even if they're feral cats, they're unowned cats, they are still protected as domestic animals under state law. What's the difference between a feral cat and a stray cat? A feral cat is a cat who is not socialized to humans. Um, They are afraid of us. They view us as predators. So usually they're cats who were born outside and they grew up without the benefit of human contact or at least not positive human contact, um, meaning they weren't cuddled and touched as 
really small kittens. By the time cats are eight weeks old, they have to be ready to face the world. Um, they're weaned from their mothers, and they are going out on their own. They barely weigh two pounds. They look like babies, but they have this fight-or-flight instinct because cats are both predators and prey. They have to decide what they think of humans. So if they haven't been cuddled by us by the time they're two months old, they're feral, and it becomes harder and harder to tame them as they get older. And stray cats are cats who did grow up with humans. They were usually beloved pets in a household. Hopefully they were beloved. And they somehow end up on the street. Either the family moves away and leaves them behind because they don't know what to do. Um, you know, there are all sorts of scenarios. But stray cats are cats who were once in human homes. And they will commingle, though, right? Yeah, they will. They're the same species. They will commingle. Um you know, cats generally get along with other cats, you know, with within boundaries. Uh, but the ones who are socialized towards humans are the ones who are going to come up to people and meow at us. That's how you tell the difference between a feral and a stray cat. You're, first of all, you're more likely to see them. But if you're feeding a group of feral cats and all of a sudden there's this new cat who is coming up to you and meowing, then you can be pretty certain that this is either a lost or abandoned pet. And they live in what are known as colonies, right? Yes, yes. So what's the structure of a colony, if you will? It's usually a family unit. Um, it's, it's usually an extended family of, of cats. Uh, you know, the descendants of whichever cats settled there in the first place found that food source and source of shelter. And uh, sometimes newcomers will come into the colony and be integrated uh, over time. But usually cats are very, very defensive of their territory. You know, cats settle in a territory, they stay put. Even if people stop feeding them, cats want to stay in their territory and they defend it against newcomer cats. But um, but sometimes new cats do come in and get integrated and they become part of, of the family unit. But of course, these are breeding cats and what we want to do is to curb the breeding so that there isn't such a high population of cats out there on the street. Yes, let's talk about how you do that. You do that mm -hmm. through a method known as TNR. Yes. Which stands for? It stands for Trap, Neuter, Return. So what we do is we humanely trap the cats um, because most of them are feral and they're not going to just walk up into a cat carrier for us like some of the strays do. Um, so we humanely trap them. We bring them to a vet who is equipped to handle feral cats. And they are neutered. They're vaccinated against rabies. And often they're also given a distemper vaccination, which protects them from a cat-specific group of diseases that cause really bad upper respiratory infections and can be fatal. Um, and they are ear-tipped while they are under anesthesia, meaning that the the top three-eighths of an inch of the tip of the left ear is surgically removed. Uh, there's just a straight line at the top of the ear. And this is all done while the cat's under anesthesia, so it minimizes the stress on them. And they recover inside the trap or in a cage for up to you know one to three days. And then they are returned to the colony. Uh, because if they're feral cats, they're not suited for adoption and the only life they know is that territory that they are so fervently tied to. So the most humane thing to do is to return them to their colony and for the person who has been feeding them to continue feeding them and observing best practices so they're not creating a health hazard or a sanitation hazard. 
and to make sure that the cats have adequate shelter. Uh, we teach workshops on how to build specific, you know, cat-specific shelters that uh, give cats a really warm and dry place to sleep in the winter. And it also saves them from going crawling into car engines in the wintertime, which can be really disastrous, or going into the crawl spaces under houses or otherwise invading human places where humans don't want them to be. But if we build cat shelters for them, then the cats like using those. And so how do you build a cat shelter? Uh, well, there are a lot of designs out there online, but the the simplest from design, low end to high end, low end to high <laughs> end, from simple to you know master craftsman. <laughs> but uh, you can you can get a fish box from a, a sushi restaurant. You know, you can just pick it off the curb on garbage night, wash it out really thoroughly, use baking soda to get that fish smell out, and you can take an ordinary kitchen knife and cut a hole, just a five inch diameter hole on one end. Um, on the wide end, um, you can go to www.nycferalcat.org to see instructions on how to build them. But uh, but you can have nothing but a kitchen knife and some glue to keep the lid on and a brick to weigh it down, and you can make a perfectly good cat shelter out of a fish box. So a feral cat really can't be domesticated? It's that challenging? It is that challenging. Um, you, know, you can try if you follow specific protocols and have a lot of time, a lot of patience, a lot of consistency, and the room to work with a cat. Uh, you could spend a year trying to tame an adult feral cat, and that cat will still never really be tame. So it, from age two months onward, it becomes progressively difficult. It also varies according to the cat's personality. Um, females are generally harder to tame than males because females have that fight-or-flight instinct, but they also have the maternal instinct that makes them just extra cautious about everything in the world. So your actual mileage may vary. I know people who have tamed adult cats within like six months, but it's a lot of time. So I we generally caution people if you have a feral cat or a semi-feral cat, uh, first of all, get that cat spayed or neutered. Get them ear-tipped because they may have to go back outside and don't spend a lot of time trying to tame the cat if you don't have the time to spend. So what's the reason for the ear tip? The ear tip identifies the cat as having been through a TNR program. You know that the cat has been neutered. Uh, if you're in New York City, we are a rabies endemic area. So you know the cat's been vaccinated against rabies. And you can tell at a distance whether a cat has been ear tipped. So, you know, these cats are afraid of us. We may not get closer than 10 feet, but at least we can see the ear tip and know that that cat has been done. Kind of like the tag that I see on deer sometime during my yeah. runs, right? Yeah, yeah. It's a very similar idea. And when a person is a, you know, a caretaker of a colony and they're in the midst of a TNR project, they can track their progress by looking at the ear tips. If you if you have a group of cats who all look alike, they're, you know, they tend to be family units. So you have 10 black cats. Five of them have been through TNR. You, know, you can see the ear tips on them. And if any of them happen to be retrapped, you can just look at their ears and then let them go if they're already ear tipped. And if an ear tipped cat happens to be trapped by somebody who doesn't really know what the ear tip is and they end up coming to a veterinarian, that veterinarian knows that the cat has already been spayed or neutered, so they don't need to 
even shave for it, looking for a spay neuter tattoo. They don't have to open the cat up and do exploratory surgery. And in New York City, if an ear tipped cat is surrendered to animal care centers, the city's shelter system, then the intake people know that this cat has a caretaker, that this cat has a colony that they where they're being fed, where they're being sheltered. So ACC works with the Mayor's Alliance and other partner groups to return that cat outside to his or her colony. How challenging, Kathleen, is it to catch a feral or stray cat on the streets of New York City to do this? It's it's something that you definitely need to be trained for. So we don't want people to go out and try it unless they've taken a three-hour trap-neuter-return workshop. Um, and it really depends on the cat. It depends on the environment where the cat lives. Uh, it depends on the people around uh, because we're basically luring cats into traps using food. So if the cats aren't hungry, they're not likely to go in the trap. And if there's a lot of noise around, the cats are going to hide. And if it, if the cat has a really, really cautious, really savvy personality, if someone has tried to trap them before unsuccessfully, then the cat knows he knows the drill. He or she knows what this trap is all about, and they're going to just want no part of it. So you may need to use some alternate advanced methods. And it could it could take a really long time to trap that one wily cat. And I know people who have taken years and finally done it. So you have a trap. Is there a net involved or just a trap luring them in? It's a it's a trap. It's a big metal mesh box. Um, we don't recommend nets because what do you do once you get a cat in a net? How are you going to get that cat out of the net and into some kind of a cage? Um, that sounds like a lot of scratching is going to be involved. I was going to say these cats also have claws. <laughs> and teeth. Yeah. <laughs> and teeth. <laughs> and they think you're going to kill them. So, yeah, they're going to act accordingly. <laughs> How long have you been doing this now? I've been doing TNR for almost eight years now, and I have been teaching TNR uh, for four years now. How many volunteers would you say you have now as part of this program across the city? Gosh, there are about seven or 8,000 certified TNR caretakers wow. in the city. The, the workshops have been going on since about 2000, and... They have grown exponentially over the years. What so. do you find as to why people want to get involved in this effort? Well, they're feeding cats, and they notice that the cats multiply very effectively, especially when they're being fed a good diet. And they think, whoa, this is wrong. I can't, I can't be feeding 40 cats. I started out with 10, and now I have 40. How did that happen? Oh, no, I... My pocketbook is is hurting, and these cats are are hurting too because there are now too many of them in this area. So they find out about TNR, and they come to a workshop, and they find out about the the free resources available in New York City to TNR caretakers, and and they take advantage of the program. Do people tend to name the feral cats that they take care of? Everybody I know who takes care of a colony names their cats. They do. <laughs> <laughs> they may not be the fanciest names. They may be something like Gray Stripe, or uh, but they, they do name the cats. They become attached to them. They have a relationship with them. Even if the cats never come within three feet of, of them, they have a relationship with their human, and, and the human has a relationship with those feral cats. What's the life expectancy of a feral cat, do you know? Ah, I do know. Um, 
There have been studies about uh, feral cats and, and TNR projects. There was a study in the University of Texas several years ago um, where the average age, uh, it was a longitudinal longitudinal study over about 11 years, and uh, the, the average age was about seven years um, at the end of the study. What are the biggest threats to feral and stray cats in New in, York City? In New York City, the biggest threats are... Uh, I would say cars. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, uh, because unneutered cats tend not to look both ways before crossing the street. They're driven by hormones. They're chasing each other. The males are chasing each other. The males are chasing the females. And, and you know, there are, are a lot of, you know, auto deaths. Um, and they can be injured. And if they're not in a managed colony where there's a human to trap them and take them to a vet to take care of them, then they could die of complications from an injury. Um, kitten mortality is very high in unmanaged colonies. Uh, I read a study that said that um, only one out of four kittens born outside will live past six months. Mm. So if someone wants more information to educate themselves or get involved, how do they go about doing that? They can visit www.nycferalcat.org, or they can send an email to info at nycferalcat.org. Kathleen, thanks so much for coming in. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Kathleen O'Malley is with the New York City Feral Cat Initiative. That's a program of the Mayor's Alliance for New York City's Animals. Feral cats are far from the only wild creatures roaming the streets of New York City. The Big Apple is home to a wide variety of wild animals, and sometimes they need a little help. Enter Urban Utopia Wildlife Rehabilitation. The organization is dedicated to rehabilitating injured, sick, and orphaned wild animals here in New York City. Jenny Topolsky is one of their rehabilitators. She joins me now in the studio. Jenny, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. So what's involved with being a wildlife rehabilitator? Being a wildlife rehabilitator means that you treat orphaned, injured, or sick wildlife with the goal of re-releasing it back to its native environment. Now, how did you come to be one of these people? Um, I discovered it on the DEC website, kind of on a fluke one day. I was looking up um, a lot about turtles, <laughs> just very Why? randomly. <laughs> I saw someone selling turtles, uh, which is illegal actually in New York. And I was looking up the specifics of the laws, um, selling them under certain size and any native turtles is illegal. So I was just kind of looking it up so I knew. And I saw a little blurb on the website about being a wildlife rehabilitator. So I looked into it and discovered, you know, the steps to do that and then went from there. Where are you from? Originally, I'm from the D.C. area, but I've been in New York since 2001. How much did you know about New York City wildlife when you took that step? Not too much. I mean, I've always been more interested probably than the average person in wildlife and animals. I'm an animal lover. But I tended to work more with pets and domestic animals. Pro I mean, I was an average average knowledge, probably. <laughs> so you have to be licensed, right? You do. I studied for the test that you have to take. It's offered by the DEC, the Department of Environmental Conservation. And uh, I just studied for it, took the test, and then you have a little interview with your local region. And um, that's it. What's involved with the test? It's uh, it's a lot of regulations from the state and the city. 
um, knowing the laws about handling, transporting, you know, uh, who you need to report certain species to, who you need to report certain diseases to, things like that. Um, and then it's also just your basic animal husbandry, diets, um, you know, triage, hydration, a little bit of, you know, math, uh, understanding your role versus a veterinarian's role because they're very different. Now um, are they different? Well, as a rehabber, you're not allowed to do any sort of veterinary work. Um, you need to work with a licensed veterinarian. So we're, I mean, I wouldn't even necessarily say we're like nurses. We're like home health aides or something <laughs> like that. Um, we, uh, you know, we work with the vet to administer the medicines, but the vet is the one, you know, prescribing the medicine or the vet will set a bone, but then we would do the bandage changes. So that like being that. said, can you keep a wild animal in your home while you're rehabbing it? Yes. Uh, you know, that depends on your personal neighborhood or... Um, landlord. If you're a landlord. <laughs> um, the regulations, if you have, you know, like um, a neighborhood uh, committee or anything like that. But it's legal to have the, the, the animals within your license on your property. But I, without a license, cannot take a squirrel into Absolutely my house. Absolutely not. And I have to remind people of that all the time when they call us uh, with any sort of animal... Um, issues. That's one of the things I have to remind everyone is that you're not allowed to have wildlife in your possession without a license. What kinds of animals are you primarily rehabbing here? Yeah, um, I volunteer at the Wild Bird Fund separately from the the group that I'm on. That's on the Upper West Side, right? It is. Um, So when I work there under their license, it's, you know, 95% birds. They get the occasional opossum or squirrel or something in as well. Our group uh, that I'm on the board of directors for, Urban Utopia Wildlife, we focus on mammals because of the fact that there is no center for mammals, specifically in New York. Um, You really have to go out to Long Island in order to find a center that can care for mammals. Um, So we're trying to fill that gap. So we personally take primarily squirrels, opossums, uh, chipmunks. We get calls about flying squirrels from time to time. Oh, and uh, eastern cottontail rabbits. And what kinds of ailments are they primarily suffering from? It's primarily orphans, um, although it's important to remember that the majority of quote-unquote orphan calls we get are not actually in danger. They're they're just separated from their mother temporarily, but then people panic and kind of kidnap the baby, and then we're telling them to put it back. It's Um, sad to see a baby animal all by itself out there. It is, but uh, nature has has, you know, created these ways of raising the young for each species that don't always make immediate sense to us. But, you know, when you, you've learned about that species and how it cares for its young, you know what's normal and what's not normal. So when you have an orphan, are you just taking it home and nursing it, feeding it, getting it well enough to be out on its own? Yes. Uh, we're doing the best we can to prepare it for adulthood in the wild um, the same way its own species mother would. Um, we're not nearly as good as a squirrel mother or an opossum mother. Uh, we do our best, um, you know, making the the habitat we create for them as natural as possible, trying to give them uh, stimulation for what they're going to encounter in the real world and handling them as little as possible. That's a big thing. People think we're snuggling these cute little babies, but we're very specifically not doing that. They, we don't want them habituated to humans. What's an example of a rehab that you went through that really stuck with you, that you remember most? Every spring and fall, we get litters of the baby squirrels, and 
they're all really unique. I mean, last spring we had a group that something seemed a little off with some of them. They were all brothers and sisters, and we really didn't think they were going to make it. We thought maybe there was a genetic abnormality and maybe the mother had rejected them purposefully. And they just struggled and struggled, but we discovered that with that extra little bit of care that a human could provide, because a squirrel mother just has limited resources. She can't raise the ones that aren't going to do well. But we were able to do that, and all of a sudden, they just came through and turned into the exact you know uh, development scale that they were supposed to be on. And it was really rewarding to see that you know these ones that had so little hope at the beginning just came through and... We released them, and they looked great, ran up the tree. <laughs> <laughs> As they're supposed rewarding. to do. As they're supposed to, yeah. What's the most unique animal you've worked with here in the city? Opossums are pretty strange little creatures um, and misunderstood. They're really they're really great little animals, and people really hate them for some reason. I, You know, they're not the most attractive. Um, they, they have do, that quite kind of freakish tail, right? They do, and people say they look like giant rats. But um, they also have their their defenders for sure. Some people really love possums, um, but they're really unique. They're our only marsupial. Um, they have a lot of weird little quirks about them. They're fun to work with. The little babies are are really charming. Um, so they're they're pretty fun. They also eat ticks. Am yes, I right? They do famously. They're very good for our environment. Yeah. Wildlife, no doubt, is very important to New York City opossums. There is an example right there because they are helping to reduce the tick population. Absolutely. Um, And I think that, you know, people are becoming more aware of that. There is definitely an initiative you feel kind of around urban areas with people trying to get more in touch with the native wildlife in that area. Um, You know, everything from rooftop beekeeping getting more popular to, you know, there's the the New York parks push about wildlife. Um, you know, in the subways, there's a lot of ads for it. So, How varied is the wildlife here in the urban jungle? I mean, we have everything from coyotes to field mice to peregrine falcons. You know, it's, it's pretty varied, I would say. We get whales. Uh, we get, you know, all kinds of sea life. We, we have the, the fisher weasels coming down from upstate. Um, I I would say it's quite varied, yeah. What would you say is the biggest misconception when it comes to wildlife in New York? That it doesn't belong here. Um, There is something about people who, especially people who've lived their entire life in the city, they seem to think if they see a wild animal, something must be wrong with it. And that's just not true. Um, Just because you see a a groundhog doesn't mean it's in trouble. Uh, We literally get calls with people just telling us they see a raccoon. And I'm like, is is there anything wrong with the raccoon? (laughs) And, you know, just kind of educating people about what is supposed to be here and if it's behaving normally or not. That being said, can we play a game of true or false? Okay. Raccoons seen during the day are always rapid. False. Very false. (laughs) So they're not. They can be perfectly healthy and out during the day. Absolutely. Especially the mothers. They have to, you know, get a lot of food to take care of their babies. So they're out and about regularly. And I think a lot of people who go to Central Park know this for a fact because there's a lot of raccoons out there. If you touch a baby bird, its mother will reject the baby. That is also very false. And no one knows where this came from, but birds have a very poor sense of smell. And they are more than happy that you did the work for them and put the baby right back in the nest. (laughs) You will get warts if you touch a toad. 
<laughs> That's false also. <laughs> these are all false. Yeah. Where do these things come from? I don't know. Um, the toad one, I really, I'm not super, I'm not super educated on my amphibians, to be perfectly honest. I'm more of a mammal and bird person. But um, yeah, I mean, maybe some of them come from well-meaning or, you know, historically there was some reason for it, but no. Here's one that I grew up hearing about in the Bronx. Bats will swoop down and get tangled in your hair. <laughs> I mean, I suppose it's possible if you're stuck in an enclosed space with a bat, but they're certainly not going to aim for your hair. They have no desire to get tangled up with you. What are the biggest challenges to being a wildlife rehabilitator? Constantly educating yourself further. Um, many of us work in fields completely separate from, you know, any sort of veterinary work or environmental work. Um, so it's just staying up with the, the data, the latest data, the latest treatments, um, going to the state and national conferences, learning from people who are scientific professionals. I mean, I'm a jeweler. That's my day job. <laughs> so I went to art school. I've taught myself all of this by learning from others, taking extra classes, just, you know, studying. So that, that to me is the hardest part is staying up with something purely voluntarily like this. <laughs> Jenny, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you. Jenny Topolsky is a wildlife rehabilitator here in New York City. She works with the nonprofit organization Urban Utopia Wildlife Rehabilitation. They're online at urbanutopiawildlife.org. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Bodarki. My thanks to producer Caroline Rotante. And thank you for listening. It's WFUV and WFUV HD New York. Listener-supported public media from Fordham, the Jesuit University of New York. Music discovery starts here.